At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to look deeper into 1 Peter, tuning into our current series, Unshakable, Steadfast Hope in an Unpredictable World. Join us as we allow God's Word to shape us and renew our hope with the brilliant truth of the gospel. All right, this morning, if you have a Bible or electronic device, I encourage you to take it out and turn with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, we're going to be in chapter 1 today of 1 Peter. And uh, as you turn there, um, you know, this year or this time of year, or usually around the, the end of August, uh, my excitement begins to grow uh, about the Detroit Lions. It's August, right? And I have dreams and visions of them actually making the playoffs. Every season I go into, like the end of August, I'm like, this is the year. This is the year. They're going to do it. They're going to make the playoffs. And I put a lot of hope in that, right? I, I hope that they make the playoffs. Um, but then... About this time of year, we see that, that dream fading. We see that opportunity of them actually making the playoffs becomes less and less likely. And I remember years ago when I was a, a super fan of the Detroit Lions, like my life would get wrecked. Like they, by about this time, I would become super depressed. I'd become super disappointed and I'd walk around and I was just angry at everybody. And it's because I was such a super fan of the Detroit Lions. And one of the things that I learned through that process, I, I still get disappointed every year, every year I get disappointed, but it's not the same level. And what I had realized is that I had come to the place in my life of placing a lot of hope in the Detroit Lions. Like my happiness was somehow connected to their winning or their losing. And I came across this verse not too long ago in Proverbs that helps us understand hope. And if we have hope in the wrong things, the challenges that come uh, about that. It can be disastrous. Uh, Proverbs chapter 13 verse 12 says this. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And, and what the... What the um, the writer of Proverbs here is trying to help us understand is that when we hope in the wrong things or our hope is not actualized, it can cause damaging things, not only to our hearts, but to our health and to our hope. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. You know, not only does unfulfilled hope lead to disappointment, but it can lead to disaster and it can even lead to death. Because something inside of us dies when our hope dies. So this morning, I want to do a quick check on your hope. Just with one question, just for you to see where your hope is. Is your, your hope in biblical hope or are you hoping right now in worldly hope? Now, imagine right now, it is Wednesday, November 4th. And every single candidate that you wanted to win has lost. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? Where's, where's your heart? Where, where's your head? Ponder that for a moment. Like, do you lose your mind on Wednesday morning? Do you run around like a chicken with your head cut off? Is, do you scream out to the rooftops, there's no hope? If that's where you're at, I want you to be reminded right now you're placing your hope in the wrong things. 
as followers of Christ, our hope is to be placed in Jesus Christ alone. Because placing our hope in the wrong things is disappointing and it's disastrous. So this morning, I want us to to continue as we walk through this letter that Peter wrote to Christians. So in essence, it's almost as though Peter could have wrote this to us today. Because the Christians that Peter is writing to were living in an increasingly hostile world towards Christianity. They were living in a place where they were on just the cuffs of great persecution. Many Christians would die because of their faith. And the the culture was becoming more and more distant away from who they were and who God was calling them to be. And the world looked at them and wanted to destroy them. And so Peter is writing to these Christians in a hostile world, encouraging them and encouraging them and teaching them and instructing them how they are to live. And the whole series that we're looking at is this idea of unshakable. How do we as Christians live steadfast hope in an unpredictable world? How can we live in this world and not be shaken? How can we live for Jesus and not allow the things that happen all around us to move us, right? This is something we desperately need. We desperately need to understand how to live this way and how God has equipped us to make it through to the end. Two weeks ago, we took a look at uh, one of the ways that God has prepared us or allows us uh, to live unshakable in a shakable world. We said we need to begin to understand our identity. Remember in verse one, I'm sorry, in verse, uh, verse two, no, verse one, he gives us the term, he helps us be reminded of who we are in Christ, that we are elect exiles. Remember that? He says, you are elect exiles. As elect exiles, what that means is that you need to take on a different identity than your worldly identity. Before Christ, we all had all kinds of identity. We were Gentiles, or we were Jews, or we were white, or we were black, or we were uh, Asian, or we were whatever. We were, had all these different identities. But he says, when you come to Christ, all of those identities go away. All of those bow to the ultimate identity of being a Christian. And he says, you are elect exiles. And what he's meaning by that is, first of all, you are elect. That God, before the foundations of the earth were laid, God knew that you would be alive right now in this day and this time. He knew that you would be living in 2020 and that you would be walking through a pandemic and that you would be walking through a very hostile world to your Christian faith. And you know what? It's good. Because he knew it. He put us here at this time. But he also calls us exiles. Because this is not our home. This is not our home. We wait for heaven. Heaven is where we are hoping for. We are waiting for. And as we wait, we are called to be here. For Christians, this is not our home. And Christians need to view life now like we're staying in a hotel. Right, think about that, right? When, when you go to a hotel, you don't walk in and you're not making crit- critiques of the bedspread and you're not saying, man, I need to change the paint on this wall. You're not walking in there with all of those things. You know that you're there just temporarily. You, you don't walk through Lowe's thinking about how you're going to fix up your hotel room. Right? You following me? 
You live in the hotel, you stay in the hotel, you take on, you enjoy the benefits of the hotel. You jump in the pool, you lay out and get some sun, you go have the free breakfast, but you don't make that your home. You're not wanting to stay in the hotel, you're waiting to get to your home. You're passing through so that you can get from one place to the next. And that's how we need to live our lives, brothers and sisters. This is not our home. But what we wait for, we saw last week, what we wait for, where we place our hope in, is our home, which is in heaven. And we saw this last week in verse three. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance. Now look at how he describes this beautiful inheritance. It's this inheritance that will never perish. It will never spoil. It will never fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you and who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. This hope that we have in, in heaven is being kept and guarded by God. It is something that is assured. It is something we can take to the bank. It is there and we wait for it. Biblical hope doesn't disappoint. It is a sure thing that we will fully experience in the future. So while we go through trials, while we walk through seasons of suffering, the greatest thing that we can do is look towards heaven and be reminded that it's there being kept for us. And that allows us to be unmoved today. We have these future promises. And what I want us to see, not only do these future promises, but there's future grace that comes that transforms our conduct Today, we live with the long view in mind, realizing that this is, not, this is not the end, this is not all the reason we exist, but we now exist for a future. And while we wait for that future grace to come, that impacts our conduct today. You see, we're not called to go crawl underneath a rock. We're not, not called to, to isolate ourselves from the rest of the world while we sit back and wait for Jesus' return. We are called today to live and, and bring out a conduct and conduct ourselves in a way that shows and displays that our hope is in Christ. There are two things I want us to see today as we, we look at this. Two ways that we are, are, are to walk as we wait for Christ's return. We're going to see in verse 13 that if God is your father, be holy. If God is our father, then we are called to be holy. Look with me in verse 13. He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action and being so sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. See, what Peter is telling us here is that if, if God is our father, you see the family language there, if God is our father, then we are called to be holy. And then Peter begins to break it down so we can have a better understanding of how do we walk in this holiness that God calls us to do. And we see here that there's a connection between our thoughts, our desires, 
and our actions. Those three things are tied together. The things that we think about, the things that we care, impact what we do. And so Peter says that if we want to move towards holiness, it begins with setting our minds on the right hope. That's where the battle begins. If we hope to be holy, then it begins by preparing our minds for action. We must constantly take uh, account of our thoughts. And he says we're supposed to do this being sober-minded, taking account of our thoughts in a sober-minded way. What he's meaning by that is is be level-headed with your thoughts. Like when your thoughts like push you um, towards, um, when, when your thoughts push you towards being a fanatic, rein them back in. When your thoughts push you towards being a defeatist, rein them back in. It's so easy. Our thoughts and our minds, and if your mind is like mine, your mind is racing a million miles a minute, right? It's hard to concentrate on one thing and your mind's going all this time. And if we give ourselves over to fanatic thoughts or defeatist thoughts, then that automatically is going to shift our hope because it's going to freak us out. So he says, be sober-minded. Take control of your thoughts. Hope will not become a reality without disciplined thinking. You can control your mind. You can bring your mind under the lordship of Christ. But then Peter here describes the hope that we have. He says it's this grace of God, the grace of God in our lives, the grace that we so desperately need will fully be realized when Jesus returns. When Jesus comes back, we'll fully experience this grace. But we can't be forget that this grace was somewhat experienced at the moment of salvation. The the moment that we came to place faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the grace and the salvation of God became ours, partially, not fully, right? And now as we live our lives waiting for Jesus' return and for him to call us home, we live in the grace of God. We live in the saving work of God right now. And then we wait and we look to when that hope is fully actualized through the saving when Jesus returns. Peter says, don't lose sight of that. Keep the long view in mind. Our hope is the work of Jesus, not things of this world. And when we find ourselves disappointed, when we find ourselves discouraged, when we find ourselves defeated, it may be that we've misplaced our hope because those are ramifications, those are are results of misplaced hope is disappointment, defeated, devastated. Not only do our thoughts change, not only do our thoughts change by grace, but our passions and our actions are also changed by grace. That's what he says. He says, obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who's called you is holy, be also holy in all of your conduct. Before we came to know Christ, we walked in the passions of the world. We thought like the world. We desired the things of the world. But when we become a child of God, we act like our father. Just as earthly children seek to imitate their earthly fathers, we who are our spiritual children now imitate our heavenly father, who his greatest attribute is holiness. 
There's no spot, there's no blemish, there's, there's no sin, there's nothing of, of shame inside of our Heavenly Father. And he says, you are called to live that way. Christians are called to live distinct lives from the rest of the world. But we also need to be very, very careful. Some come to a passage like this and they say that um, we need to uh, get the proper order of, of about obedience. Some say that you need to obey so that you can experience salvation. Right? The, the more you obey, the more you are saved. And I would say that's absolutely wrong, and that's not what this passage is saying. What this passage is saying is when you are saved, you, that salvation produces obedience, not the other way around. Salvation produces something that God does inside of us. It's a work of the grace of God. So at the moment of salvation, there is desire for holiness. And it's the work of the grace of God in us to produce it. it it's kind of like this. Now, now that I am married to, to Sarah, I, I love being married to her, but I, I'm, I'm married to her now, so I don't live like I'm single. Right? There were a lot of things that I did when I was single, and now that I'm married, I put that lifestyle away. I, I don't wake up in the morning thinking about, about all the things that I need to do for myself. I wake up in the morning thinking about now my, not only my wife, but my, my family, my kids. Like I did a lot of crazy stuff when I was single. I don't do that stuff anymore because I'm married. Not only, and, and also, I don't live my life now being faithful to Sarah to, to earn my marriage. I not, don't live faithful to, to my wife so that I uh, stay married. I'm faithful to my wife because I'm married to her and I love her. Do you see the difference? It's not a minute difference. It's, it's a huge dichotomy change from the way that you live. And this is what Peter is telling us. We live from this place. We live for this hope. And it's the work of God's grace in our lives. But if we're honest with ourselves, we know that many Christians are truly guilty of living syncretistic lives. Do you know what that means? It means that what, they, what a lot of Christians do is they take their Christian faith and then they take practices of the world and they try to mold it all together and they, they try to take the best things of Christianity and the best things of this world. And they say, okay, I, that's, I'm gonna live in this place. And I want you to understand that place is a place of sin. When we see our culture uh, taking sin and, and, and making it less than what it is, when we see the, the world saying that sin is okay, just do what feels good. I've heard so many Christians say that. And that's a lie from the pit of hell. Don't do what feels good because you know what feels good? Sin. And you know what sin's gonna lead to? Sin leads to death. Sin leads to destruction. Sin leads to all kinds of broken relationship. And sin leads to absolute death. Our world tells us to change the value of human life. Our, our world tells us that the human life is up for debate when it comes to my right to choose. But God has already spoken that each person is made in the image of God and each person has dignity and value. That's not up for discussion. That's not up for debate. God has clearly spoken that there are two genders. There's male and there is female. This is not up for debate. This is not up for discussion. God has clearly spoken that marriage is defined as one man and one woman. That's not up for debate. That's not up for discussion. 
That's God has clearly spoken. He has told us how we are to live. God has told us how to parent. God has told us how to, to value our money and to use our resources. God has spoken into every area of our lives. Just because God's grace is in our life does not give us a license to sin. Many Christians think that their sin goes unnoticed. And I want us to see in verse 17, it reminds us of God's judgment. Being a member of the family of God has great privileges, but it doesn't mean that our disobedience will go unnoticed by God. Brothers and sisters, God's judgment shows up in our lives because our lives are not free from consequences. Right? And I wish I had more time about this because there's, there's some way of which the judgment of God shows up for, for the Christian later on, like at, at the day that we stand before Jesus and have to give an account for our life. There's some way in which the judgment shows up there, but more likely the judgment shows up in our consequences today. We do sin. Sin gives birth to sin. And sin that gives birth to sin leads to death. And that's why there's so much divorce. That's why there's so much destruction. That's why there's so much pain and brokenness in our life today because of sin. So how should we respond? Well, he tells us, he tells us that we're to respond in fear. Not, not to be afraid of God as though when we do something bad, we need to be like Adam and Eve and run and hide. But no, we have a healthy respect for God's authority in my life or in your life and in our lives. It's kind of like that race car driver, right? That the race car driver that's sitting in that race car knows that race car has amazing power. But that race car driver also has a healthy fear of that. So that race car driver is not going to live foolish. Because if he lives foolish, what's going to happen? He's going to wreck. And so in the same way, God calls us to live lives, not foolish lives, but lives that seek holiness. And this holiness brings about happiness and contentment in each one of our lives. Holiness is not a bunch of things that you can't do anymore, but it's a way of becoming more and more like our father, more and more like our dad, who is good and who is right and who is pure. Don't listen to the voice and the noise of our world but instead listen to the voice of our Heavenly Father. If God is our Father, then we are called to be holy. The second truth I want us to see is that Jesus is your Redeemer, so be faithful. Jesus is our Redeemer, so be faithful. First Peter uh, verse, uh, one, or chapter one, verse 18 says this, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. For he was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. So what Peter has done is he has just told us how we are to conduct ourselves in, the, in this time of exile while we wait for the Lord's return. We're to live as holy, but now he gives us the why. Why are we called to live holy? And we are called to live holy because the precious blood of Christ. 
Why do we live this way? Because of Jesus. Peter tells us that we have been ransomed. We don't really know what that means these days. It's a word that, that we rarely or seldomly use and rarely even understand. But as Peter is using it, he's hearkening back to reminding people that God is a ransoming God. That God is a God that is a redeemer. That God is a God that is a liberator, which is really what that word means. So God is, we have been ransomed. We have been liberated. And God's people in the Old Testament understand all about this liberation because there was a time in which they were slaves in Egypt. And God came and he ransomed them or he redeemed them or he delivered them from their slavery, their slavery to Egypt. We see in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 8, it says, It's because of the Lord and his love for you that he is keeping his oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord had brought you out of the mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So this concept of redemption and this act of being ransomed or liberated from slavery for Israel, it was a liberation from Egypt. But now for the Christian, this liberation is from sin. We are liberated from sin. We are ransomed from sin. We're ransomed from the feudal ways that were inherited from our forefathers. Each one of us are born with a bent towards sin. We have our own flavor of sin that we, we like and it's more appealing to us. Some, it may be pride. Some, it may be money. Some, it, 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 it may be relationships. It may be uh, desiring a position. There, each one of us have a bentness towards sin. And just because each one of us are bent towards a specific type of, type of sin doesn't make it okay. This is what he's saying. You can't say because it's genetic, you're, you're sinning in this way because it's genetic. Well, yeah, you've got sin written on your heart. And he says, you've been redeemed from that. You have been redeemed from everything that, that you desire that is not of the Lord. You have been liberated from your desires, your feelings, from your futile ways doesn't matter how you were brought up. It doesn't matter if you grew up in a home where, where sin was okay. It doesn't matter if you grew up in a home where alcohol was, was abused and used. It doesn't matter if you grew up in a home where your dad treated your mom poorly. It doesn't matter if you grew up in, in, in whatever your grow, however you grew up, however you began to, to be taught and, and began to allow your mind to be molded into what is right and what is wrong. When you come to Christ, you're ransomed from all that. You no longer have to live under that oppression, but you can live in the liberated freedom under the blood of Christ. And that's exactly what I want us to answer now. So how were we ransomed? Well, we see here clearly that we were not ransomed with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but it was the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. There's only one thing that can ransom you. It's not bettering yourself through a 12-step program. It's, it's not learning more things or changing your behavior, but it's coming under the blood of Jesus. That's the only thing that's going to change us. 
Because we know in the Old Testament there was a sacrificial system. That, that night before God redeemed his people from Israel, he had them take the blood of a, a lamb and pour it over or wipe it all over the doorpost of their home. And as that last plague, the plague of death, came over the city, all the firstborns in the homes, all the homes were, would die unless that blood covered the doorpost. And then we see this practice of, of sacrificing through the shedding of blood continue on throughout the Old Testament for God's people. It was a constant reminder that there was a cost for their sins. And it was a cost that they couldn't pay themselves, that something else had to give its life and spill its blood for forgiveness to be given. All of that points to Jesus. And we see this, even Isaiah, as he's foretelling in the future, he tells of this suffering servant that would come like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, so he opened not his mouth. You see, Jesus is the one that gave his life, shed his blood, so that we may be forgiven. And what I love about verse 20, as we, we look into the verse 20, we see that this was not just something that God kind of came up with on the fly, that Jesus was his plan before the foundations of the earth were laid. That's what he says in verse 20. It says, he was foreknown, being Jesus, the suffering servant, was known before the foundations of the world, but was made, fan, man, man, made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Jesus didn't come from nowhere. Jesus wasn't just something that, that God made up on the fly, but before the foundations of the world were laid, it was destined that he would come. And did you, did you pick up on that? Why did he come? For your sake. That your, that word your, you can replace with your name. He came and was the ransom through the shedding of his blood for you and for me. For our sake, he became the fulfillment of God's plan that was there in the way, way back. You know, I want us to understand today, if you are not in Christ, if you do not know Christ, if you have not placed your faith in Christ, you're on a path towards futility. You're on a path that's leading towards destruction. And I implore you today, and with the strongest way that I can encourage you, is to come to Jesus and place your faith in him. Because we are sinners and we are in need of rescue. And Jesus has done it. All we need to do is come to Jesus and say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins and be the Lord of my life. And when we do that, he comes in and starts us on this path towards holiness. But as we live now, as we wait, what is the way that God wants us to live? He wants us to live faithful lives, to live faithful. Verse 21 talks about what he's done and, and through him are believers in God, that's us, who raised from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the test of our lives. The question is, where is my faith and where is my hope? If my continually putting my faith and my hope in God, then that's when I'm going to live an unshakable life. But as soon as I start putting my faith in people or I put my faith in, in other things and my hope in other things, and those things begin to, to wander or they begin to be destroyed, then my faith and my hope begin to be destroyed. 
So the question is, are today, are you putting your faith and hope in God? A God that cares for you, a God that has a plan for you, a God that loves you, or are you putting your faith in other things? If God is, if Jesus is our Redeemer, then we are to be faithful. We are to be faithful to God. Place our faith in God alone. But as we live this life, we are to care for things. Right? We are to, to care for our family. We are to care for our nation. We are to care for a career. And we are to have those things. Be married, have children, all these things. And all of these things are good things. right? Like all the good things of the hotel. But we don't make those things our ultimate thing. Those things are not what we worship. Those things are not the things that are great. We hope and we give our lives over to God because he is our hope. So live in the world, brothers and sisters. Let's live in the world while we wait for Jesus' return. Live seeking to become more like Jesus and seeking to continue to make sure that our hope and our faith are in him alone. Today, if as you've been listening and the word of God has been penetrating your heart, if you realize that there's been an exchange somewhere in your life where you've placed hope in something other than Jesus, the greatest thing that you can do because of the grace of God is to go and confess it to God. Say, God, forgive me for making this my object of hope more than you. Let us not be shaken by the things of this world. Let us walk trusting that God has a plan, that he loves us, and that he cares for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for your word today. Your word that reminds us that you are trustworthy and that you are working in and through our lives and all around us. Help us, God, when we are tempted to think like the world, to care for the things of this world, and to live like the world. Father, help us, God, to be distinct. Help us to be different not for the sake of just being different, but for the sake of your great name and for your great glory. That's why we live and that's why we're here. That's why you have elected us to be alive right now because you know and you knew you had a plan for our lives. Help us, God, not to miss it. Help us not to to try and, and bring together our worldly past and, and our Christian life and make them one, but help us to see those distinctions. Help your spirit to, to work in our lives, to convict us of sin. And help us to respond in love. God, we thank you for who you are and thank you for what you're doing in our lives. And now as we worship, may we worship from a place of gratitude and from a place of feely, truly being ransomed and redeemed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.